Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Filmonomics at Slated. My name is Colin Brown and I'm your podcast host for this series that looks under the skin of the film business in order to better understand its decision-making process. Now for the uninitiated, you might think that learning how films are made for commercial consumption might be akin to hearing how sausages are made, a hidden world full of unpleasant truths that will only get in the way of our enjoyment. As with peace treaties, the less you know what goes into sausages, the better. But the reality of movie making is not nearly so unappetizing. The more you interview film decision makers, the less mysterious and distasteful the business of making movies becomes. For all its colourful personalities and conniving tactics and constant shifts, cinema has historically boiled down to a couple of core considerations that never really went away. Namely, do you have a story worth telling visually? And if so, how can that story be dressed up to entice a paying audience? Those two essential elements, development and marketing, are what the most successful film executives seem to keep forever in their focus, while all around them the methods by which films are made, measured and distributed are subject to perpetual change. I was reminded of all this when interviewing this week's special guest, Scott Mosier. As the producer and co-editor of most of Kevin Smith's movies since they first made Clerks together 24 years ago, Scott has enjoyed a front row seat in the evolution of the independent filmmaking business these past couple of decades. That period has been nothing short of transformational for all those concerned, and yet, as you'll hear from our conversation, the fundamentals have remained pretty much the same. Today, of course, Scott is firmly established as a producing force. Check out his profile on Slated, where he joined as one of its earliest members, and you'll see that he has a Slated score of 61, no less on the back of successes such as Freebirds, Zack and Miri Make a Porno, and Goodwill Hunting. You would think that by now, professional life has become so much easier for Scott than in those desperate learn-as-you-go days fresh out of Vancouver Film School when he and Kevin used every trick in the no-budget book to cobble together their debut. Well, far from it, says Scott. In many ways, it feels like more work now. Like, it feels more difficult to escape. I think that because of all the technology, people have been shrinking schedules. So we're doing the same amount of work in less time. Because it is possible. In catching up with Scott over the phone from Paris on the eve of what turned out to be a momentous French presidential election this year, the conversation frequently returned to the side effects of all this technology on our personal and business lives. Those advances, he suggested, seem to be happening faster than our ability to absorb and process all that new information, and certainly at a much faster pace than he experienced growing up, when the locus of suburban entertainment gradually switched from playing arcade games at the mall to watching videos and playing on consoles at home. As someone who taught himself all aspects of the film production process, Scott has also seen firsthand the impact of that accelerated technological change on independent cinema that his films have helped to shape. His years since Clerks have played out like a living laboratory of filmmaking R&D. You know, Kevin and I made Clerks in 1993. We shoot it in 93. We cut on film, um, sell it in 94. Marat is done on film. And then when we were going to do Chasing Amy, I've always been interested in editing. And it's like one of my favorite parts of the process. And I remember hearing about the Avid and reading about it. And there was a guy who lived near us in New Jersey. And he said, oh, we got an Avid in New York. And I was like, well, could I come up and kind of take it for a test run? Maybe you can give me some tutorials so I can kind of learn what it is. And I would go up on the weekends and nights to learn how to use it. And I remember I bought a nine gig drive for like $1,500 or $1,200 or something like that. And so Chasing Amy was the first movie that we cut on, on an Avid. 
And we finished shooting and then Kevin and I went to New York and basically just were in this edit room day after day, sleeping in it. Did a first cut of the movie in like two weeks. He would fall asleep and then I would cut and then I would fall asleep and he would cut. And we would just keep going and going and going. And I was sort of also teaching him my limited knowledge of it. We were at the, at the very beginning of the sort of digital revolution through the film industry and kind of watched it from, you know, those early days till now. And it's just so completely different. And everybody, I think, gauges how the world changes based on many factors. You know, I, having in my early 20s started making movies, that has always been like a real gauge of how fast things are, have changed. From movie to movie to movie, watching the process of dailies and digital cameras and digital editing systems and all that just changed. And it was like every time I went to make a movie, it would change from the, it felt to me like from chasing Amy forward, every time we made a movie, the technology had advanced and you know, the resolution had changed, but how dailies were done had changed. Or the DI, like at a certain point, once digital started, you know, obviously there was a lot of investment and a lot of money pouring into it, but it was just like just watching it change more and more and more and more and more. Of course, one of the defining moments in the democratizing rise of digital cinema is Clerks itself. This raunchy, raggedly made film about sex, death and hockey in a New Jersey convenience store won prizes at both Sundance and Cannes and was released by Miramax. Inspired by the early films of Rick Linklater and Spike Lee, Clerks was a film that inspired Gen X filmmakers everywhere, that the means of production were within their reach, and that even the seemingly uneventful lives of do-nothings could also have the makings of great entertainment. Kevin Smith and Scott scraped together the $27,575 they needed for the film from maxed-out credit cards, money borrowed from parents, and selling a prized comic book collection. Kevin even went so far as to register for a cooking class at New York's New School to learn about roast suckling pig, just to get a student ID, and with it a 30% discount on Kodak film stock. Shot in black and white for no better reason than they had no money to do any color correction, the film was screened for the first time to an almost empty room at the independent feature film market in Manhattan, while empty except for one eagle-eyed Sundance programmer who recognized what one critic would later call a grunge godot. The rest is history, propelling Kevin and Scott into careers as the poets of profanity and a thriving sideline as pundits of pop culture with their own podcast series, or smodcasts as they call them. All these years later, I asked Scott how he saw Clerk's contribution to indie filmmaking. It's, it's such an interesting question because I always think about the timing of when we made that movie, you know? I think when we made that movie, the real attribute we had was the script. Like, if you strip everything away, like, I couldn't say this when I was 21, but I can sit there now and go, like, what's the defining thing that makes that project? And not to say that there aren't tons of contributions that are put on top of that, that are additive. Like, absolutely there are. But it's like... If you look at it from a ways back, lots of people are making independent movies. Then there's a lot more now, obviously. Um, but even at that time, we weren't the only people making these smaller budget movies. And so I have always thought about like, well, what's the what's the thing that distinguished what we were doing or what we did versus some of these other ones? And like I said, there's there's definitely more than just one thing. And to reduce it down just to the script is is maybe diluting it down to one thing too much. But I do think that like, it's not like my vast experience in making movies or Kevin's vast experience in making movies or Dave Klein who shot it, who's now shooting Homeland or the actors or like, did we all bring a sensibility or at a moment or this or that? Absolutely. 
But the thing that I believe really made that movie into the success that it is, is the script. And it's the thing that even nowadays you can sit there and look at, yes, digital technology has made it possible so anyone can tell a story. But the, the difference between just making a movie and making a movie that people are going to relate to or is going to tap into the zeitgeist or however you want to describe it, I think still comes down to your ability to generate material, generate great material that is going to be the foundation for what that movie is going to become. That to me is the thing that hasn't changed. And I think we still see it now where it's like, there's definitely more movies being made now. And even in the documentary field where I've made a few documentaries. Yes, anyone can pick up a camera. I can decide to make a documentary about you. I can make a documentary about anybody and we could do it. And even if you make a documentary about somebody that's famous, it doesn't mean it's gonna be a good documentary. You still have to sit down and go like, in my estimation, is there a story there? Or is there a compelling idea there that will track through the film where I actually care to get to the end? Those things to me still apply, but that could be once again, me having grown up watching what I watched and that might be ingrained in my brain. And you know, this is a really long answer, <laughs> but I also think about the idea that what do audiences want? And maybe what I'm trying to generate or what I'm trying to tap into or what I feel is the foundations of a good movie are, you know, there's a chance that that is evolving too, that that's changing. Because even if you look at movies from the 30s or 40s, it's like there's certain elements of those that you couldn't necessarily do today, you know? like an audience wouldn't be accepting of it. And whether it's the black and white is generally really difficult to do, how people would speak, all those things. And those have changed based on people's taste, based on people's experience with the world. There's no reason why that won't continue. Since Clerks, Scott has occasionally made films for studios, as he did with More Rats, and soon possibly again with a new animated version of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas that Universal has pegged for a November 2018 release. But throughout most of his producing career, Scott has stayed resolutely on the independent margins, catering to a loyal constituency of Kevin Smith fans, and also separately pursuing his own documentaries and animated films on subjects that speak to his personal tastes. For Scott, deciding what kinds of movie to make comes down to opportunity, and also knowing which trade-offs you're willing to live with as a filmmaker. For me, the answer is really a personal choice of, of every filmmaker that's out there. It's like what you're presenting is the choice of like, well, what do I, who, who do I want to make movies for? Or how do I want to come at this? And I think it all comes down to money. So if you want to make a $90 million movie, you have two paths to doing that. One, you're going to make a movie with a lot of input from a lot of different sources, meaning marketing, the studio, putting up the money, test screenings and you know market research screenings. And you're also gonna have to deal with what is the, the sort of movie of the moment even, you know? Like, oh, this was successful this week. Do we have any of that in our movie? Like, if you wanna go make those movies, those big, or make movies in the studio system, it's like all that stuff are things you're gonna have to contend with. You can make a $90 million movie if you, are able to start at a level where you can make your specific movie, you know, exactly to your taste, find your audience, and then have each movie afterwards, you get more money and you continue to be successful. There's a world where you can make a $90 million movie 
exactly the way you want, but you're going to have to create success. You're going to have to hit some stages. You know, you're going to have to make that smaller, lower budget movie. You're going to have to climb up there. And that's where I think it's a real personal decision of what type of filmmaker do you, do you want to be? For me, when I go back to even Kevin saying like the script, it's like, cause contained within the script was the voice, you know, the movie had a unique voice. Absolutely. But that was in the pages, you know, it was in the script. Like, it was a, a document that had his voice inside of it. And then what we were there was just to kind of assist in putting that voice on film. And it wasn't like a voice where you're like, we're not quite sure what he's trying to say here. And it was distinct and you knew it and you knew that you hadn't seen a movie like this and, and the writing was sharp. And you know, we couldn't have gone to a studio and got that movie made. Like rated R movies where people say the sort of things that we were saying were not part of the mainstream sort of movie culture at all. So you had to make that movie there. And that's where it got started. And you can and you can have a distinct voice. And if you want to have a distinct voice and do things that are off the radar, it's like then you should really be looking into how you can do that and how you can make movies for less money and figure out the distribution that of what you can get. And like you said, you may want to make a series of movies that are in that wheelhouse, which are you have a really distinctive voice. And maybe your distinctive voice has a limited audience. You know, maybe your distinct voice is not going to attract an audience so large that you can move into the studio system and make $90 million movies. But I also admit, like, this is where the change in distribution and all that stuff is something that I've not kept up that well and I'm not an expert on. And, and I, I've made some documentaries like three or four years ago. And one of them was called A Band Called Death. We didn't make it for a lot of money. I love the story. I was really excited about the story when I heard it and we got to make it the way that we wanted to. And we were just, you know, when you're making a movie where it's like, yes, you're showing other people, but generally it's like, you're kind of going like, we're going to decide what the best version of this movie is. And then we're going to send it to Sundance and South by Southwest, et cetera. And I love the movie and I thought the movie was great. And, you know, the reviews and, and people have seen it have been really great and really responsive, which is great. The filmmaker to me, I'm like, if I love a movie, I love hearing that other people love it. Because partly it's like, okay, I can continue to have a job because my tastes aren't so fucked up or off what people like. Because it's like, if you make a movie, you're like, I love this. And then no one likes it. It's like, well, then it's really hard to go to work every day. Because for me personally, you are relying on your taste to a certain degree, to do your day-to-day -day job, you have to rely on your taste. You, there's no computer sitting around where you can type it in and be like, what kind of song should we play here? It's like, you are relying on your, on your taste, like on a, on a day-by-day -day basis. You have test screenings, you get other people's opinion, but you know, the real day-to-day -day work of making a movie is your experience and your taste and, and all of that. And it was great to get that response, but once we get into the cycle of, of film festivals and trying to sell it, it felt like having not necessarily done that for a while, I kind of was like, oh, wow, like the whole space of distribution has changed. And I, I think I came into it a little bit with like, you go to a festival, you sell it. There you go. And uh, that's bad advice <laughs> at this point. The documentary feature that Scott is referring to here chronicles the incredible story of death, the pioneering punk band formed before punk even existed by three teenage brothers in their spare bedroom in Detroit during the era of Motown and disco. Intimidated by both the band's name and its music, Death were rejected by the music establishment until three decades on, a dusty 1974 demo tape was discovered and went on to find an audience several generations later. It's the classic music fairy tale 
and one that I imagined might have benefited from tapping into Scott's own loyal base of avid fans. Would a band called Death fit into the Smodcast brand, I wondered. I think it can, I think it can always be a plus. You know, it's, it's never a negative. People are always like, oh, you have that outlet in order to promote things. But in trying to get that movie out there, you know, we'd submitted to South by Southwest and it got a good response, but we submitted the same year as Searching for Sugar Man. They're musically very different stories, but there's certain similarities. And so you end up in a situation where they're left making a decision and maybe, you know, and, and whether they liked one better than the other, they also are stuck going like, you know, you're trying to also program for variety. And I, you know, I really like the movie. But in that moment, you know, in the life of a movie like that, had Searching for Sugar Man not existed and we got into Sundance, it changes. It, yeah, it just changes the path. There's always a world where an audience will find a movie. You know, there's always those stories. But it still is a world where film, certain film festivals can elevate the status of the movie. They can, I think, in the minds of distributors, eliminate some of the risk by saying, okay, well, somebody has stepped in and, and created a profile for this movie. Like we're buying it with, a, with an existing foundation of audience have seen, that critics have seen. They get to come in at a, at a time when, when other people have elevated it. And so we didn't get in there and we didn't get in South by and then we played at LA Film Festival, which was great. Like it was great and the screening was great. And we did a, did a deal with Draft House, which was great. But then it's a world of like, you still are trying to compete and you know money and marketing and all the rest of it becomes really important and it was my it was just a, it was a really different experience and i remember when the movie first came out and we were getting good reviews and you're seeing the watching it online and watching articles i was like oh shit like here we go and then you realize four days later that it's like yeah but in order to maintain that buzz is is not easy in the world of the internet it's like somebody slips a nipple at the super bowl and you're gone you know like that's it if you're relying on that as your major source of advertising, you're in there for a moment and then anything can take you down really quickly and, and sort of and, and just another movie, you know, it's like another movie comes out or another trailer or any of that stuff. And then you have a hard time. So it wasn't a financial windfall at all. But then, you know, I have watched the movie Travel and I know that it's gotten all over the world and, you know, the band itself has played in Brazil and Paris and you know, they've been able to travel all over the world playing their music. What you realize is like people's ability to have access to the movies are still there and word of mouth still exists. You know, like these things get passed on and on and on and on, on a global level even. And like, obviously for me, it's like I've had success. And so the financial part of that, not necessarily working out, I'm okay. And, and knowing that the band's out there in Brazil is like, makes me feel awesome. Like I love the movie. And I love that those guys are out there. Like the whole experience has been great. But as a filmmaker, you have to look at it where it's like, okay, well, there is a movie that has played in different territories over the world and, and the band's like being able to follow up in those territories and play. But how do you turn that into a financial situation for yourself that you can move on and make the next movie and the next movie, you know? Because a lot of guys are making these documentaries or making these independent films and you know, putting up the 10,000, 20,000, 15,000, whatever it is amount of money. And it's not that easy to necessarily recover after you do it and just go make another one. There are people out there like making documentaries about food and shit. And they're just like, they've not only created a play, a forum to make movies, but they have mailing lists. Like they've created a, a brand essentially. And, and that brand 
is allowing them to make film after film and and using the proceeds from the film before. And so it's really, it's changed and there's opportunities, but it's like, I think for people that are coming into the business, it's really important to understand that. And it's important to understand it so you can decide which path you want to take, you know, what, because regardless of which one you want to do, for me, it's like, well, it's all about hard work. You know, it's all about putting your time in and working really hard. But like, they're two very different paths. If it's all about hard work, I asked Scott if this new world of disruptive wonders and technological hacks have served up any hard-earned shortcuts for busy producers just like him. Yeah, it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really let up. It's like the work is still the same. I, I actually think that it's a little bit harder now. I think what happened is that emails and text messages and cell phones and what's ended up happening is it's like, it actually feels like more work now because you can't escape it because there's no just like, all right, we're going to go off to the day and shoot. And there's one person with a cell phone the size of a suitcase in case there's an emergency. Because I remember doing dogma and I remember all I was really doing was like, I would be on the phone, like maybe three times a day with the executive to go over stuff. But that was it. I wasn't getting like a flurry of emails. And of course with emails, I think that there's, there's little or no filter. People sit there and go like, have some like random thought in their head and they'll send you that email or they'll send you that text message. But given the choice to call me on the phone about it, they might not do it. Or at least they'll think about it for a second. They'll be like, uh, yeah, like, because talking to me on the phone and then having me go like, what? why are you calling me about this? <laughs> and that's true of me or of anybody. You know, you can end up sending anything or in an email or a text. And sometimes it's like, well, you could have just called, like, you could have sent me one email with five questions at three o'clock as opposed to sending me five emails with one question from like nine to three o'clock. Like none of them needed to be figured out right away. So in many ways, it feels like more work now. Like it feels more difficult to escape. I think that because of all the technology, people have been shrinking schedules. So we're doing the same amount of work in less time because it is possible. But the effect of the people making the movies is I think that there is a feeling of like, we're getting crunched a lot more. So how does a person who juggles between producing, editing, podcasting, writing, and the occasional acting roles cope with all those competing demands on his time? How does one remain effective? Mostly what I try to do, and I'm not saying that I'm successful at this at all. Like this is my constant battle, which is anything that I'm trying to do, I want to try to be focused on that idea or that thing that I'm doing. It's funny, like even when I made a band called Death and Milius and another one called Best Kept Secret, which we won a Peabody for, I made them all at the same time. Like I kind of got into a, a frame. I just wanted to make documentaries. And I or I'd done some stuff, but I was like, oh, I really wanted to make a music documentary and a movie documentary. And, and Best Kept Secret kind of came through some connections. And I just thought the material was, was awesome. And then when I was done, I was like, oh, I wanted to try animation. And so I got it. I worked on Freebirds. And some of it is opportunity. And then while I'm doing it, what I've tried to do is put my wife first, <laughs> put that specific project second, and then everything else I kind of deal with. I mean, you know, like even scheduling this, it's like, I'm kind of like, I have my top two priorities. And then the rest of it, I sort of figure out when the right time is, where I'm sort of going to be able to mentally be focused on it enough that I'm not just sort of phoning it in, you know? And so sometimes I can't do everything, especially now. 
sometimes I have to say no to things or, or push things off for three or four weeks before I can find a time where my headspace is more clear. I, I just think multitasking is like a total load of shit. I can do four things at once, but I can step outside my body and be like, yeah, but you're not doing a great job of those four things. Like I'm doing a good enough job that nobody's going like, what the fuck are you doing? But I can sit there and go like, yeah, but you're not as connected to each individual thing and you're not thinking each thing through and trying to figure out a way to make sure that you're concentrating on each task specifically and giving it that sort of deeper consideration is not something that I am even that I do on a regular basis. Like I get caught in the wheels of, of multitasking and having multiple things going on. And, but I'm always trying to reset and make sure that I'm going like, all right, like we have to reschedule these things or change these things around. So I'm not doing a half-assed version of 10 things. <laughs> Cause I think you could do a half-assed version of 10 things and the world will react accordingly, you know, and you can do a, a, a really thoughtful version of one thing. And I think that you'll have more impact than all the sort of half-assed crap you put out there. And I say that as not me going like, that's exactly how I'm going to live my life, but it's, it's something that, you know, sort of struggling and pushing up against on a daily basis. All of which brings us full circle back to Clerks. As Scott observed earlier, the foundation for its seminal success was the script itself. And you can't really create such a fantastic blueprint from which to tell a story without putting the work in and slowing down to concentrate on creating the best screenplay that one can. The ability to screen out everything else becomes an ever more important skill. Something that, looking back, applies also to the making of that movie over the course of its 21 productively by their pants shooting days. Has Scott and Kevin's tiny band of collaborators even allowed themselves to be bombarded with all of today's concerns? Not to mention worry about what their follow-up film might be to Clerks? Their careers might never have lifted off in the first place. You know, I really, whenever I think about the movie, obviously I have very fond memories of making the movie. And at the age I'm at now, part of why that movie was able to be what it was is that we all just showed up there and we're, that's all we were concentrating on. We didn't have any distractions. And all we were really doing was showing up and going, how do we make this funnier? How do we make, how do we make this? You know, even just like, how do we light an exterior? We don't have enough lights. You're dealing with these very specific issues and all those issues are concentrated on the project that you're making. And I think that especially people out there trying to make their first movies, I think as much as possible, you should try to create an environment where you're able to do that because it does translate onto the screen and too much of being worried about what your next movie is or, or all the rest of that stuff can really muddy what that, first movie has to be which is a real true personal expression and in order to do that you have to be really focused and be living in it you know 100 percent. you know and i have the same thing it's like i carry my phone around and it's always dinging and binging and pinging and i'm supposed to be focusing on one thing and you can get convinced that you can do like oh, i can answer that email and also concentrate on this but you know i always liken it to driving a car it's like people drive and text and do all kinds of crap in their car where they should just be driving <laughs> You know, and and I think that obviously we have uh, the capacity to think that we can do it all. And like I said, I just don't agree with that. I don't think I can like I, at all. So I can experience the moments where I'm trying to do 10 things and I'm like, you're not doing you're not you're not at 100 percent right now. You know, which I just a simple pie chart is like if you're in a room and a bunch of people are asking you to do something 
if you set your phone down and you look at it and you take a deep breath and focus on that, that's 100%. The second you're glancing at your phone or doing something else, the pie is getting smaller and smaller. You're just not concentrating 100%. You're keeping a part of your brain open to something else, you know, to that like, oh, someone, oh, I'm supposed to get an email about this or an email about that. And I think as much as you can to be able to set things aside and be like, all right, this is what I'm doing for the next 30 minutes. And then you can check your email. And this is what you're doing for the next 30 minutes. Um, the more you can do that, the better off you are. That was Scott Mosier speaking from Paris in an interview recorded a couple of weeks ago. The fact that so much of what he says is relevant for all fields of life these days, and not just film producing, is a reminder that business productivity is a matter of more than just processing numbers and gathering information and insights. You also have to find ways to be in the zone, that phrase so often used by athletes, psychologists, and creatives to describe that tunnel vision state of mind when you achieve clarity and turn all that incoming data into something powerful and purposeful. The constant bombardments of our hyper-connected lives are not exactly conducive to such states of heightened focus and performance, which is why screenwriters so often escape to their caves to be able to focus and rejuvenate their creativity, and why it may also be a good idea for producers and business executives to make a similar point of switching off for extended periods as well. You need to find ways to feel inspired, but not overwhelmed. A delicate balancing act for sure. And on that note, I'll leave it there for this week and deal with my own flurry of emails. Thank you.